By taking a look at our past, we find reasons to celebrate the present. This and more on the Manitoba Freethinker Podcast. Welcome back to another show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're having a wonderful day as always. Quick question, do you guys agree with the changing the names of institutions and roads that were named after the architects of the residential school system? And I'll even take it one step further, do you agree with taking down statues of former prime ministers uh, who had a role in the residential school system? Let me know in the comments below either way how you guys feel. All right, Manitoba, in today's episode, we are going to be going over a brief history of the residential school system that was here in Canada. Um, On the heels of Canada Day, there's a growing trend on social media for the cancelling of Canada Day, and some jurisdictions throughout Canada are cancelling events due to the recent discoveries of the burial sites of residential school children. And uh, unfortunately, the discoveries do keep growing and uh, the numbers as well. Now, I went over last show that there are some politicians who are also calling for Canada Day events to be cancelled. Now, thankful here in Manitoba, both uh, Premier Brian Pallister and Mayor Bowman said that we should celebrate Canada Day, even though we fall short of perfection. From Mayor Bowman, quote, Canada Day is a time to come together to celebrate our common bond as Canadians and to reflect upon the actions necessary for our country to live up to the ideals we hold dear. Um, Bowman's email statement says, adding that Canada Day events should continue to evolve to better reflect our community's values and inclusion. And a quote from Pallister, quote, No country is perfect, absolutely not one on the face of the earth, but Canada is a lot closer than many. So I don't think that denying Canada Day celebrations is a respectful way for us to move forward. I think we should celebrate our country, but we should celebrate it with warts too. So as far as I know, um, the only jurisdictions that are cancelling Canada Day events in Manitoba is Churchill, Thompson and Shamawada First Nations. I would like to point out, though, that Mayor Bowman did say that Winnipeg itself isn't holding any events, uh, so they have none to cancel, or I'm sure he would have been in first in line to uh, cancel any celebrations that are happening in Winnipeg. But as of now, I guess the uh, loud minority hasn't uh, gotten to him. Okay, so I'm going to read over what took place in the residential school system, kind of like a little history lesson for y'all. And I want to point out and talk about how bad it was, because honestly, uh, there was some horrific shit done. Uh, They did some pretty terrible things. They, as in the Canadian government at the time. But it it shows us why we could celebrate our present and uh, what Canada represents now. Uh, to us, and to millions of people around the world. So, I don't think we have to cancel Canada Day for past mistakes, uh, mistakes that we are not repeating. You know, bringing the light to the bad shit that we did back then just fortifies my beliefs into why we should celebrate today. Because Canada is nothing like that anymore, and, uh, you know, it represents how far we have come as a country. 
So uh, this is from Wikipedia, so it is what it is. If there's something in there that isn't 100% factual, don't blame me. I ain't no fucking journalist. I'm just a commentator. But uh, I also want to point out that me just reading this is going to offend some people because uh, our terms have not been... uh, Our terms that we used back then are not the terms clearly that we use today. For example, uh, the word Indian or Aboriginal is used in these documents um, instead of Indigenous or First Nations. So I'm just going to point that out. I'm just reading what it says. So I'm just going to read a brief overview and then I'll get into more of the details. So Canadian Indian Residential School System. In Canada, the Indian Residential School System was a network of mandatory boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to remove Indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and assimilate them into the dominant Canadian culture. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, around 150,000 children were placed into residential schools nationally. By 1930, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending residential schools, and the number of school-related deaths remain unknown due to incomplete records, estimating between 3,200 to over 30,000. The system has had its origins in laws enacted before Confederation, but it was primarily active from the passage of the Indian Act in 1876. An amendment to the Indian Act in 1894 made attendance at day schools, industrial schools, or residential schools compulsory for First Nation children. Due to the remote nature of many of the communities, school locations meant that for some families, residential schools was the only way to comply. The schools were intentionally located at substantial distances from the Indigenous communities to minimize contact between families and their children. Indian Commissioner Hayter Reed argued for schools at greater distances to reduce family visits, which he thought counteracted efforts to assimilate Indigenous children. Parental visits were further restricted by the use of a pass system designed to confine Indigenous peoples onto reserves. Uh, The last federally operated residential school was Gordon Indians Residential School in Punichi, Saskatchewan, was closed in 1996. Schools operated in every province and territory with the exception of New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. The residential school system harmed Indigenous children significantly by removing them from their families, depriving them of their ancestral languages, and exposing them to physical and sexual abuse. Students were also subjected to forced enfranchisement as assimilated citizens that removed their legal identity as Indians. Disconnected from their families and culture and forced to speak English or French, students who attended the residential school system often graduated being unable to fit into the communities but remained subject to racist attitudes in the mainstream Canadian society. The system ultimately proved successful in disrupting the transmission of Indigenous practices and beliefs across generations. The legacy of the system has been linked to an increased prevalence in post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, substance abuse, and suicide, which persists within Indigenous communities today.
On June 11, 2008, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper offered a public apology on behalf of the government of Canada and the leaders of the other federal parties in the House of Commons. Nine days prior to the Truth and Conciliation Commission, or the TRC, was established to uncover the truth about the schools. The commission gathered about 7,000 statements from residential school survivors through public and private meetings at various local, regional, and national events across Canada. Seven national events held between 2008 and 2013 commemorated the experience of former residential schools uh, students. In 2015, the TRC concluded with the establishment of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation and the publication of a multi-volume report detailing the testimonies of survivors and historical documents from that time. The TRC report concluded that the school system amounted to cultural genocide. In 2021, hundreds of unmarked graves were discovered on the grounds of some former residential school. Okay, so here is a brief synopsis of the history. Attempts to assimilate indigenous peoples were rooted in imperial colonism centered around European worldviews and cultural practices, and the concept of land ownership based on the discovery doctrine. As explained in the executive summary of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the TRC, in their final report, quote, underlying these arguments was the belief that the colonizers were bringing civilization to savage people who could never civilize themselves, a belief of racial and cultural superiority. Assimilation efforts began as early as the 17th century with the arrival of French missionaries in New France. They were resisted by indigenous communities who were unwilling to leave their children for extended periods. The establishment of day and boarding schools by groups including the Recolets, Jesuits, and Ursulines was largely abandoned by the 1690s. The political instability and realities of colonial life also played in, a, in the decision to halt the education program. An increase in orphan colonial children limited church resources, and colonialists benefited from favorable relations with indigenous people in both the fur trade and military pursuits. Education programs were not widely attempted again by religious officials until 1820, prior to the introduction of state-sanctioned operations. Included among them was a school established by John West, an Anglican missionary at the Red River Colony in what is now Manitoba. Protestant missionaries also opened up residential schools in the province of Ontario, spreading Christianity and working to encourage Indigenous peoples to adopt subsidence agriculture as a way to ensure they would not return to their original nomadic ways of life upon graduation. Although many of these uh, early schools were open for only a short time, efforts persisted. The Mohawk Institute Residential School, the oldest continuously operated residential school in Canada, opened in 1834 on the Six Nations of the Grand River near Brantford, Ontario. Administered by the Anglican Church, the facility opened as a mechanics institute, a day school for boys. In 1828, it became a boarding school, and four years later, it accepted the first female student. It remained in operation until June 30, 1970. The renewed interest in residential schools in the early 1800s can be linked to the decline in military hostility forces 
faced by the settlers, uh, uh, particularly after the War of 1812, with the threat of the invasion of the American forces minimized, indigenous communities were no longer viewed as allies but as barriers to permanent settlement. This change was also associated with the transfer of responsibility for interactions with indigenous communities from military officials who were familiar with and sympathetic to their customs and their way of life over to civilian representatives only concerned with the permanent colonial settlements. Beginning in the late 1800s, the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs, or DIA, officially encouraged the growth of the residential school system as a valuable component in a wider policy of integrating Indigenous peoples into European-Canadian society. The TRC found that the schools and the removal of the children from their families amounted to cultural genocide, a conclusion that echoed the words of historian John S. Malloy, who argued that the system's aim was to, quote, kill the Indian in the child. End quote. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, around 150,000 children were placed into residential schools nationally. As the system was designed as an immersion program, Indigenous children were in many schools prohibited from and sometimes punished for speaking their own language or practicing their own faiths. The primary stated goal was to convert Indigenous children to Christianity and acculturate them. Many of the government-funded residential schools were run by churches of various dominations. Between 1867 and 1939, the number of schools operated at one time peaked at 80 in 1931. Of these schools, 44 were operated by 16 dioceses, (laughs) I fucked that up, and about three dozen Catholic communities. 21 were operated by the Church of England, or the Anglican Church of Canada, 13 were operated by the United Church of Canada, and 2 were operated by Presbyterians. The approach of using established school facilities set up by missionaries was employed by the federal government for economic expedience. The government provided the facilities and maintenance, while the churches provided teachers with their own lesson planning. As a result, the number of schools per domination was less a reflection of their presence in the general population but rather their legacy of missionary work. So speaking uh, from like not a fan of the government, you could tell right from the beginning, indigenous people were fucked over by our government. You know what I mean? Like talk about backstab. They were allies in fighting the Americans. And as soon as the war was done, the Canadian government didn't have a use for them. And then they became the enemy. So, I mean, I'm no fan of the government. I can clearly see that they uh, fucked over our indigenous people. This is something most of us knew already. We learned about that. But it is mind-blowing to uh, to actually read about and put yourself in their shoes and, and think what you would have done if you were back then. But uh, here's a brief uh, synopsis of the government involvement. So although education in Canada was made uh, the jurisdiction of the provincial governments, By the British North American Act, Indigenous peoples and their treaties were under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Residential schools were funded under the Indian Act by what was then the Federal Department of the Interior. Adopted in 1876 as an act to amend and consolidate the laws respecting Indians, it uh, consolidated all previous laws placing Indigenous communities, land, finance under federal control. 
As explained by the TRC, the act, quote, made Indians wards of the state unable to vote in provincial or federal federal elections or enter the professions if they did not surrender their status and severely limit their freedoms to participate in spiritual and cultural practices. The report commissioned by Governor General Charles Bagot titled Report on the Affairs of the Indians in Canada and referred to as the Bagot Report is seen as the fundamental document, sorry, it is seen as the foundational document for the federal residential school system. It was supported by James Bruce, 8th Earl of Elgin, who had been impressed by industrial schools in the West Indies, and Egerton Ryerson, who was then the chief superintendent of education in Upper Canada. On May 26, 1847, Ryerson wrote a letter to George Vardon, Assistant Superintendent of Indian Affairs, asserting that, quote, the North American Indian cannot be civilized or preserved in a state of civilization, including habits of industry and sobriety, except in connection with, if not by the influence of, not only religious instruction and sentiment, but of religious feelings, end quote. He expressly recommended that Indigenous students be educated in a separate denominational English-only system with a focus on industrial training. This letter was published as an appendix to a larger report entitled Statistics Respecting Indian Schools. The Gradual Civilization Act of 1857 and the Gradual Enfranchisement Act of 1869 formed the foundations of the system prior to Confederation. These acts assumed that inherent superiority of French and British ways and the need for indigenous peoples to become French or English speakers, Christians, and farmers. At the time, many indigenous leaders argued to have these acts overturned. The Gradual Civilization Act awarded 50 acres of land to any indigenous male deemed, quote, sufficiently advanced in the elementary branches of education and would automatically enfranchise him, removing any tribal affiliation or treaty rights. With this legislation and through the creation of residential schools, the government believed indigenous peoples could eventually become assimilated into the general population. Individual allotments of farmland would require changes in the communal reserve system, something fiercely opposed by the First Nations governments. In January 1879, Sir John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister of what was then post-Confederation Canada, commissioned uh, politician Nicholas Flood Devon to write a report regarding the industrial boarding school system in the United States. Now known as the Devon Report, the Report of Industrial Schools for Indians and Half-Breeds was submitted to Ottawa on March 14, 1879, and made a case for the cooperative approach between Canadian government and the church to implement the aggressive assimilation pursued by President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Devon's report relied heavily on findings he acquired through consultations with government officials and representation representatives of five civilized tribes in Washington, D.C., and church officials in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He visited only one industrial day school in Minnesota before submitting his findings. In his uh, report, Devon concluded that the best way to assimilate indigenous peoples 
was to start with the children in a residential setting away from their families so they could be, quote, kept consistently within the circle of civilized conditions, end quote. Davis find, uh, Devon's findings were supported by Vitell Justin Grandin. Those you may know, um, that's Bishop Grandin was named after him, the street Bishop Grandin, um, who felt that while the likelihood of civilizing adults was low, there was a hope when it came to Indigenous children. He explained in a letter to Public Works Minister Hector Langevin that the best course of action would be to make the children lead a life different from their parents and cause them to forget their customs, habits, and language of their ancestors. In 1883, Parliament approved $43,000 for three industrial schools and the first Battleford Industrial School opened on December 1st of that year. By 1900, there were 61 schools in operation. The government began purchasing church-run boarding schools in the 1920s. During this period, capital costs associated with the schools were assumed by the government, leaving administrative and instructional duties to church officials. The hope was that minimizing facility expenditures would allow church administrators to provide higher quality instruction and support to students in their area. Although the government was willing to and did purchase schools from the churches, many were acquired for free given the rampant disrepair um, present in the buildings and resulting in them having no economic value. Schools continued to be maintained by churches in instances where they failed to reach an agreement with the government officials with the understanding that the government would provide support for capital costs. The understanding ultimately proved complicated due to the lack of written agreements outlining the extent and nature of the support or the approval required to undertake expensive renovations and repairs. By 1930, it was recognized by government officials that the residential school system was financially unsustainable and failing to meet the intended goal of training and assimilating Indigenous children into European-Canadian society. Uh, Robert Hoyo, Superintendent of Welfare and Training in the Indian Affairs Branch of the Federal Department of Mines and Resources, opposed the expansion of new schools, noting in 1936 that to build educational institutions, particularly residential schools, while the money at our disposal, disposal is insufficient to keep the schools already erected in a proper state of repair, is, to me, very unsound and a practice difficult to justify. He proposed the expansion of day schools and approach to educating Indigenous children that would continue to pursue after being promoted to Director of Welfare and Training Branch in 1945. The proposal was resisted by the uh, United Church, the Anglican Church, and the missionary uh, who believed that the solution to the system's failure was not restructuring but intensification. Between 1945 and 1955, the number of First Nations students in day schools run by Indian Affairs expanded from 9,500 to over 17,000. The growth in student population was accompanied by the Amendment of the Indian Act in 1951 that allowed federal officials to establish agreements with provincial and territorial governments and school boards regarding the education of Indigenous students in the public school system. These changes were indicative of the government's shift in policy from assimilation-driven education at residential schools into the integration of Indigenous students into public schools. 
It was believed that indigenous children would receive a better education as a result of the transition into the public school system. So despite this shift in policy from educational assimilation to in- integration, the removal of ind- indigenous children from their families by state officials continued through much of the 1960s and 70s. The removal were the result of the 1951 addition of Section 88 to the Indian Act, which allowed the application of provincial laws to indigenous peoples living on reserves in instances where federal laws were not in place. The change uh, included the monitoring of child welfare, with no requirements for specialized training regarding traditions or lifestyles of the communities they entered. Provincial officials assessed the welfare of indigenous children based on Euro-Canadian values that, for example, deemed traditional diets of game, fish, and berries insufficient and grounds for taking children into custody. Can you imagine that? Like, some fucking dickhead from the government's telling you you're not feeding your kid right, so I'm going to take him away. Meanwhile, they recommend, like, bread as like a staple part of your diet these fucking idiots this period resulted in the widespread removal of indigenous children from their traditional communities first termed the 60s scoop by patrick johnston uh, the author of the 1983 report native children and the child welfare system often taken without the consent of the parents or community elders Some children were placed in state-run child welfare facilities, increasingly operated in former residential schools, while others were fostered or placed up for adoption by predominantly non-Indigenous families throughout Canada and the United States. While the Indian and Northern Affairs estimates that 11,132 children were adopted between 1960 and 1990, the actual number may be as high as 20,000. In 1969, after years of sharing power with churches, the DIA took sole control of the residential school system. The last school operated by the Canadian government was Gordon Indian Residential School in Punichi, Saskatchewan, was closed in 1996. Residential schools operated in every Canadian province and territory with the exception of New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. It is estimated that the number of residential schools reached its peak in the early 30s with 80 and more than 17,000 students enrolled. About 150,000 children were believed to have attended residential schools over the course of the system's existence. All right, parental resistance and compulsory attendance. The parents and families of Indigenous children resisted the residential school system throughout the existence. Children were kept from schools and in some cases hidden from the government officials tasked with rounding up children on reserves. Parents regularly advocated for increased funding for schools, including the increase of centrally located day schools to improve access to their children, and made repeated requests for improvements to the quality of education, food, and clothing being provided to the schools. Demands for answers in regards to claims of abuse were often dismissed as a ploy for parents seeking to keep their children at home and with government and school officials positioned as those who know best. In 1894, amendments to the Indian Act made school attendance compulsory for Indigenous children between 7 and 16 years of age. The change included a series of exemptions regarding school location, the health of the children, and the prior completion of the school examinations. It was changed to children between 6 and 15 years of age in 1908. 
The introduction of mandatory attendance was the result of pressure from missionary representatives reliant on student enrollment quotas to secure funding. They were struggling to attract new students due to the increasingly poor school conditions. Compulsory attendance ended in 1948 following the 1947 report of a special joint committee and subsequent amendment of the Indian Act. Government officials were still able to influence student attendance. The introduction of the Family Allowance Act in 1945 stipulated that school-aged children had to be enrolled in school for families to qualify for the, quote, baby bonus, further coercing Indigenous parents into having their children attend. And that's something that the government still does today. They're doing it with COVID. They're encouraging um, employers uh, with $5,000 for hiring uh, only people who are double vaxxed or are willing to get both doses. So um, bribing Canadians is nothing new. Um, something the government's been doing forever. So some of the conditions. Students in the residential school system were faced with a a multitude of abuses by teachers and administrators, including sexual and physical assault. They suffered from uh, malnutrition and harsh discipline that would not have been tolerated in any other Canadian school system. Corporate punishment was often justified by the belief that it was the only way to save souls or punish and deter runaways whose injuries or deaths sustained from their efforts to return home would become the legal responsibility of the school. Overcrowding, poor sanitation, inadequate heating, and lack of medical care led to high rates of influenza and tuberculosis. In one school, the death rate reached 69%. Federal policies that tied funding to enrollment numbers led, uh, led to sick children being enrolled to boost numbers thus introducing and spreading the disease. The problem of unhealthy children was further exasperated by conditions of the schools themselves, i.e. overcrowding and poor ventilation, water quality, and the sewage system. Until the late 1950s, when the federal government shifted to day school integration model, residential schools were severely underfunded and often relied on forced labor of their students to maintain their facilities. Although it was presented as training for artisanal skills, the work was horrendous and severely compromised the academic and social development of the students. School books and textbooks were drawn mainly from the curricula of the provincially funded public schools for non-Indigenous students, and teachers at the residential schools were often poorly trained or prepared. During this period, Canadian government scientists performed nutritional tests on students and kept some students unnourished as the control sample. That is fucking insane. This is why I don't like the government people. Like, that, that is a fucking crime. These people should be in jail. They should have been shot and hung, actually. But <clears throat> Despite the mistreatment of students were uh, published numerous times throughout the 20th century by government officials reporting on school conditions, and in the proceedings of civil cases brought forward by survivors seeking compensation for the abuse they endured, the conditions and impact of residential schools were also brought to light in popular culture as early as 1967 with the publication of The Lonely Death of Shaney Wenjack by Ian Adams in Maclean's and the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67. In the 1990s, investigations and memoirs by students 
former students revealed that many students at residential schools were subject to severe physical, psychological, and sexual abuse by school staff members and by older students. Among the former students to come forward was Phil Fontaine, the Grand Chief of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, who in October 1990 publicly discussed the abuse he and others suffered while attending Fort Alexander Indian Residential School. After the government closed most of the schools in the 1960s, the work of the Indigenous activists and historians led to the greater awareness by the public of the damage the schools had caused, as well as uh, to official government and church apologies and a legal settlement. These gains were achieved through the persistent organizing and advocacy of Indigenous communities to draw attention to the residential school system's legacy of abuse, including the participation in hearings of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Okay, family visitation. Uh, warning, this part is fucking mind-blowing. It's fucking insane! Uh, parents and family members regularly travel to the schools, often camping outside to be clear, uh, sorry, closer to their children. So many parents made that trip that the Indian Commissioner Hader Reed argued that the school should be moved further from the reserves to make visiting more difficult. He also objected to allowing children to return home during school breaks and holidays because he believed the trips interrupted their assimilation. Reed said in 1894 that the problem with the day school was that students returned home each night, where they're influenced by life on the reserve, whereas, quote, in the boarding or industrial schools, the pupils are removed for a long period from the leading, from the leadings of the uncivilized life and receive constant care and attention, end quote. What a crock of shit that is. A visitation for those who could make the journey was strictly controlled by school officials in a manner similar to the procedures enforced in the prison system. In some cases, school denied parents access to their children altogether. Can you fucking imagine a school not letting you see your children? I can't even grasp that concept. There would be like three or four dead teachers right there. That's all. Um... Man, it's fucking mind-blowing. I don't think there's any Canadians out there that disagree at how fucking horrible these uh, residential schools were. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that is in the past and that isn't Canada now. But, uh, but I'll continue. Others required families to meet with them in the presence of school officials and speak only in English. Parents who could not speak in English were unable to talk to their children. The obstacles families faced to visit their children were further exasperated by the past system introduced by Reed. Without legislative authority um, to do so, the past system restricted and closely monitored the movements of Indigenous people off reserves. Launched in 1885 as a response to the Northwest Rebellion and later replaced by permits, the system was designed to prevent indigenous people from leaving reserves without a pass issued by a local Indian agent. So on top of all the other crazy shit that went on in uh, the residential school system, both academic research and the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee relay evidence that students were included in several scientific research experiments without their knowledge without their consent, or without the consent of their parents. And these experiments include nutritional experiments, which involved intentional malnourishment of children, vaccine trials for the BCG vaccine, as well as studies on extrasensory perception, 
vitamin D diet supplements, hemoglobin, uh, bedwetting, and dermatologics. So they literally experimented on Canadian children. So that, I mean, I don't know about genocide, but that is definitely a crime against humanity. And uh, I don't think anyone was held responsible. So Manitoba, that is a brief, uh, somewhat brief description of the residential school system in Canada. I just want to ask you, now that you've listened to that, did you guys change your opinion on the question I asked you at the beginning of the show? Like, do you guys support the name changes for the institutions or the roads uh, for the people who were involved in, uh, like, the architects of the residential school system? And uh, me, for one, I I don't give a fuck what they name them. I don't give a shit what our roads are called, nor do I give a shit about what our schools are called or our other institutions. I do, however, draw the line at pulling down statues of prime ministers. I mean, that is our history, whether it's good or bad. I think we should learn from our history so we don't repeat it. But um, the name of a school... I couldn't care less. So let me know how you guys feel. But um, after reading, you know, a little bit about the residential school system in Manitoba right now, there are, I think, I don't know, there might be more, but there are at least four um, name changes that are being proposed. They are McDonald Youth Services, which was named after Hugh John McDonald, former Manitoba Premier and son of John A. McDonald, who is our first Prime Minister. The second one is the Ryerson Elementary School um, in Pemina Trail School Division, and they voted to create a committee to examine the possibility of renaming the school um, after they received uh, complaints from parents and students um with uh with, with the involvement of Egerton Ryerson in his involvement with the residential school system the third is Oscar Blackburn school which is located in South Indian Lake which did take a vote and they unanimously unanimously voted to change the name so that is actually taking place right now and the fourth is Bishop Grandin Boulevard and the street is named after Vitel Justin Grandin. And while Grandin was known for advocating on behalf of Métis people and defending the French language rights in Western Canada, he was also known for being a supporter of the residential school system. So what do you think, uh, Bishop Grandin, Oscar, Blackburn School, Ryerson Elementary School, and McDonald Youth Services? All four of those, I really do not give a shit if they change the name. I don't think it has any effect on our day-to-day life. So if it honestly bugs someone, fucking change it. I mean, not that if it bugs someone, change it. If we named a school after a piece of shit person, we should rename the school. That's all I'm saying. Let me know what you guys think. So for the first time, maybe ever, I'm going to take Pallister's advice. And I am going to celebrate Canada Day with the warts and all. Let me know what you guys think, Manitoba. Let me know what you guys are going to do. But that is going to do it for today's show, Manitoba. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode. Like, share, subscribe. Do all that good stuff that helps out the show. Um, you can follow me at Twitter, at MBFreeThinker. 
You can follow me on Facebook, Manitoba Freethinker, or you can go to my website, www.mbfreethinker.wordpress.com. And you can even go to YouTube, Manitoba Freethinker Podcast on YouTube. So I think I'm getting around. I'm almost on all the platforms. Still not on Apple yet, but I'm working on that. But either way, Manitoba, thank you so much. Um, And I want to say happy Canada Day to all you guys. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll catch you guys uh, probably Friday. Bye.